about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lauren. And how are you, Lauren? Oh, pretty good, actually. Lauren Michelle. Oh, how- so I don't know why. Name. I just thought I'd throw that in, just so everyone knows now. Thank well, now you. you do. I'm pretty good. How about you, Alicia Marie? I'm, I'm all right. Actually, do you know what? Either I've shrunk all my underwear or my ass has just grown exponentially <laughs> in the last couple of weeks. I wonder what would have caused that. I don't know. None my undies fit. Anyway. <laughs> too much cold water <laughs> or too much... Is that too much cheese? Chocolate? I think it's cheese. Yeah. I think I cheese booty. I don't think there's anything really wrong with having a cheese booty. No. <laughs> it's probably the best kind of booty to have. Yeah. But look, <laughs> it's that's... We're not here to talk about cheese That's booties. not important this week. Because uh, what is important this week is, of course, our deviant woman of the hour. And this time around, it's, we're going to a, a land of fun times for me. <laughs> fun, fun times. This is one of your most beloved subjects. <laughs> it really is. It is. I yeah. feel like the stars have aligned in a, in a constellation of, of a, a few stars that you really love. Yeah. Can I name the stars? Go for I'm it. suspecting. You give it a bell. We've got the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Hell yes. We have Muses. Yeah. And we have... Art generally, yeah, generally <laughs> art. You're you're quite right, yeah. And all of those things in a big cauldron of general happiness for me. Good, I think. Um, yeah, because I think a couple of episodes ago, I can't remember what episode it was, but we just vaguely mentioned the pre-Raphaelites mm. in relation to what I have no recollection. But it just put this the little seed in my mind that I was like, oh, we're gonna have to do that in the near future. So of course today we're gonna be talking about. Lizzie Siddle. Mm, Elizabeth Siddle. Yeah, well, she did go by Lizzie. Yeah. Yeah. Just saying. So, but if you want to say just a full name. Formalising it for the people. Formalising it for the people Not out Not everyone there. may know who Lizzie Siddle is. No. So Lizzie Siddle is an interesting figure because she was many things. Um, but I think she's most most commonly sort of known or, or remembered now as being pretty much like the first kind of supermodel. The mm. first... Muse, and when I'm talking about supermodel, I don't mean strutting around in clothes. I mean posing for painters yeah. whose face was really um, used over and over again in so much artwork that became so very famous internationally. And I guess I'm sure you're going to talk about this, but for most listeners who maybe aren't familiar with her, you'd probably know her as Ophelia, right? That is right. Yes. yes. So, so you can picture Ophelia lying in that river. Yeah. So the, yeah. So that painting um, by um, by Millet is the the one that she's most famously yeah. known as the model for, and there's. The story that's attached to that. But look, we'll get to all we'll of that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Sorry. Jumping ahead. That's all right. You're allowed to jump ahead because I, I, that puts it in mind for those who might be familiar with that painting, who it is we're talking about. Yes. And for the rest of you who have no idea what the fuck we're ram- <laughs> rabbiting on about, we'll lay it all out for you now. Yeah. Okay? Good. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's jump in. Tell so us. So we're going back to one of our favourite times. <laughs> Ooh, let me guess. Take the a guess. 1800s. Yeah, in one of our favourite places. 
England. Victorian England. Oh, we do spend a gosh, an awful lot of time in Victorian England. Gosh, a jolly good amount of time there. That's correct. Sorry, everyone is English. <laughs> but we are going to go to London. Let's just start in London. Good. People, let's just do it. Okay. With her and birth. We're going to start with her birth, of course. And you're quite right. She was, um, first of all, she was Elizabeth Eleanor Siddle. This was uh, her name. And she was named after her mother, who was also um, Elizabeth Eleanor Siddle. Yeah. So, you know, hey, why not just confuse everyone? But this is why she comes to be known as Lizzie later on yeah. anyway as well. So we'll refer to her as Lizzie. And she was born in 1829. So you're nodding. with your yes, <laughs> Lauren sagely. is nodding very happily about mm. that. Yes, 1829. Oh, mm, I'm so pleased. <laughs> um, and, I mean, her family wasn't particularly rich. Her um, father was a successful businessman, though. He was a cutler. Basically, he made cutlery. Oh, really? Yeah. I was wondering if it was some sort of like ten, tangent to a butcher. No. You know, they cut the butcher, meat into cutlets. Cutler? No. Basically, he made cutlery. It's not as exciting. But... That is so on point that it's almost <laughs> confusing. <laughs> you could always never guess what yeah. it was. <laughs> but, I mean, so they were pretty working class family and she had a lot of siblings. And so, they, I mean, they weren't particularly well to do but she did learn to read and write presumably at home we don't know whether or not she went to school but she was literate and she did love poetry and drawing from a very young age this is another very common theme amongst our deviant women it sure Mm. is and apparently um tennyson was her favorite poet which is a very pre-raphaelite poet because tennyson was all of the pre-raphaelite's favorite poet and apparently she discovered tennyson on a piece of paper that was wrapped about wrapped around a lump of butter Oh. And that's how she discovered him. <laughs> Isn't that just such a, like, a very working class way it's to discover poetry? such a working poetry. class. Yeah, I don't think that that's what you tell at the dinner party with the rest of the pre-Raphaelites, you know. <laughs> I first came to Tennyson at Oxbridge. Oh, I found him on a piece of butcher's paper. Wrapped around some butter. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, so from a very, very young age, she did have an interest in in art and in poetry and all these sort of finer, I suppose, beautiful things. So they're like respectable working class. Yeah, they're not the poorest of the mm. poor, but they um, neither are they the most educated yeah. either. But, um, but they're trying hard. Yes, definitely. Respectable people. Respectable people. Mm. And, of course, as um, was the case for a lot of working class families, she went out to work quite young in order to help support the family. So she began working in her late teens and she got herself, a, again, a fairly respectable job and she got a job working in a dressmaking shop and a milliner's. Mm. And it was here that, according to the legend, her life would change. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. Forever. 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 So we're going to put her on pause in the milliner's shop. Just oh. imagine her. She's there. She's at the back. She's making hats. Her. Yep, doing something with hats. Putting feathers in hats. She's putting nice bows on hats. Yeah, in a very Victorian fashion. Good netting. Yeah, some feathers and it's beautiful. Mm. So we're going to put that on pause and we're just going to talk about, now we've mentioned this word, the pre-Raphaelites. Yeah. We've mentioned that. We've bandied that about. So let's just have a little moment to outline what that is. Okay. Because that's where our life is about to go. So the pre-Raphaelites, for those who have... Had the poor, sad lives not to know this beforehand. Hey, don't be judgmental. <laughs> I'm sorry. We all come to knowledge in our own ways and times. <laughs> Only because it was such a very important part, as we've discussed, 
of my childhood. <laughs> so it's very, very special to me. The Pre-Raphaelites uh, were a group of artists and there were two sort of incantations of incantations. There were two kind of manifestations of the Pre-Raphaelites, mm-hmm. otherwise known as the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Yeah. Um, and the first was in 1848 and it lasted to sort of about 1852, 1853. So it wasn't a very long time. And uh, there are seven members of the original Brotherhood, but there's only really three who history cares about that much. And that was John Everett Millay, who, mm-hmm. Ophelia, which we'll get to soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Hollam Hunt, who was a very fascinating character who wandered off to the Holy Land and painted goats. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> we need not to talk about him too much. And then there was Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Oh, Dante Gabrielle Rossetti. Yeah. Now, Rossetti. That guy. That guy. He's the genuine worst. We'll, <laughs> we'll get to that. He's in. named after Dante. He Not is. that I'm suggesting. That suggests that Dante was the worst. I don't know if Dante was the worst. He was actually called Gabrielle Dante Rossetti, but then because he idolised and hero-worshipped Dante so much, he swapped his name around. Really? So everybody called him Dante. Because his father was a Dante scholar, I believe. Yes, he, he was. Yes. Correct. Very good. But anyway, Malay and um, Hunt, they met at the Royal Academy, which was the main art school of the day. And Malay was the youngest uh, entrant into the Royal Academy at 11. 11? What a precocious little fuck. Fuck off. Yeah, I know. Holy shit. Tell me about it. Precocious (laughs) little shit. Um, (laughs) But the Royal Academy was this school. It was basically established probably about 100 years beforehand. And it was a design and art school. And every year they held a very much anticipated exhibition. And of course, well, it still exists. Mm. Uh, So you can still go there and see their exhibitions. You can still study there. But interestingly enough, uh, women, of course, weren't allowed to study at the Royal Academy. What? I know, shock horror. Despite the fact that when the RA was actually founded back in 1768... Two of the founding members were women. Really? Yeah, Mary Moser and Angelica Kaufman, who we've mentioned briefly before. Have we? Anyway, I just think that that's a slight irony um, (laughs) for the times. So Rossetti saw the work of um, Holland Hunt and he basically pleaded for Holland Hunt to be his teacher. So Hunt took him under his wing. And that's how the three of those figures kind of come together. Now, the Pre-Raphaelites themselves, so the way that they kind of were interested in art was they, they were interested in um, rejecting kind of the, the, the way that art was being taught at the time. Yeah. So the whole idea about this name, the Pre-Raphaelites, was that they were going back to a time before Raphael. Yeah, they kind of liked the like 14th century Italian yeah, artists, didn't that's they? That's right, yeah. Well, it wasn't actually Raphael himself that they had a problem with. It was kind of everything that came after Raphael and the way that it kind of like, I guess because the name is Pre-Raphael yeah. arts, right? It's yeah. not Pre-Raphael so they're actually oh, yes. they're rejecting the Raphael the the Raphaelites the Raphaelites the the people who followed in the school of Raphael yeah so they're kind of going back to a time before this yeah so art was taught in this kind of way where you had these idealized subjects the lighting was always on the most holy of them you mm. used uh, very idealized romanticized kinds of subjects whereas the pre-Raphaelites, they wanted truth to nature. So they wanted to paint things how they really looked. They didn't want to idealise subjects. Mm. So, for example, Millet's first sort of painting that had quite a lot of uproar against it, because as with all new art, they weren't 
they were shunned to begin with. It was mm. obscene and abhorrent. And his painting, Christ in the House of His Parents, got absolute scorn and loads of criticism um, because in it you could see the veins in the hands. Yeah, okay. You could see the dirty fingernails. There was blood. The yep. faces were so realistic. And it kind of took – obviously it was a painting of the child Christ, but it made it look like he was just, you know – in just in a shitty little workshop instead yeah. of being this divine figure, right? Yeah. So there was this sense of realism to it. And critics raged, raged against it. They hated it. I'm sorry, I'm trying to give you a really brief history of the pre-Raphaelites here because we need to get on to Lizzie. Lizzie. But it's important to know this and what they were all about. Oh, and one of their very famous early critics was Charles Dickens as well. Oh, really? He fucking hated them. <laughs> and he railed against this particular painting and thought it was trash <laughs> and then funnily enough he became one of the biggest fans oh and, well what do you know yeah Dickens. exactly just get on that popularity train um so this is the pre-raphaelite brotherhood this is who they are this is where they're coming from and they're looking on the streets for faces to paint right they're so, just wandering around yeah so, so this, this is like that fantasy that you have when you're 13 and you're like <laughs> if i'm just walking the street someone's gonna discover me that's right yeah if i'm I mean, just busking in this corner a record agent is gonna, gonna walk past and see how amazing i am or right. how beautiful i am and they're gonna be like you should be a model i'm an agent yeah. here's my card correct that's right this is what they were doing yeah kind of a little bit. Making yeah. dreams come true. Well, they basically just wanted to paint what they saw. They yeah. just wanted to paint the layman on the street, right? And this was kind of this idea of going back before Raphael and just instead of painting all these divine, iconic, holy figures, just painting everyday life mm. and the way they saw it. And even though Dickens hated them, they had one very powerful, powerful ally in John Ruskin, and he was the art critic of the time. Yes, he was. He definitely was. And he was the guy, if you got a good word from him, mm. then everything was going to be all right. So fortunately for them, he was on board. Now, are we going to come back to the Milner's shop now? Now we are. Yes, we are. She is just so, plucking that feather onto that hat. And this is our scene. Yeah. We're pressing play and she's moving ah. again. And um, oh, let's try and paint a scene. So on the street, walking down the street, this is the legend as well. So who yeah. knows how true this is. Walking down the street is Walter Deverell. Now he was a artist as well and he was a friend of the other pre-Raphaelites. And he was painting a painting of Twelfth Night and he needed himself someone to model for viola. He needed a viola. Of he did. He did. So he's walking down the street and he's like, well, I'm not going to find that person. <laughs> what am I going to do? Walks past the hat shop. And this is me just making this story up now. I'm just like painting a picture. And he stops and thinks, I'll look in the window at a hat. <laughs> so he stops, he turns around, he's looking in the window. Well, he might hat. need a good disguise for Viola. And that's true. That's true. And then, although in the painting she's not wearing a hat. And then he looks through the window and the camera does that thing where the camera is looking at the window and, and then, then the lens, cha lens changes. The focus shifts. Yeah, the focus shifts. And, and there's some, Lizzie. And he's looking through the back and there's Lizzie. Oh. That's what happens. And then the light falls on her because it's a cinema and this is how they yes. show <laughs> That's what happens. And he thinks, holy Jesus fuck. Yeah. Those were his exact words. That's her. Her. There. She's Viola. That's what I need. Yeah. She's my woman. Yeah. So at the time, being an artist's model was not the most respectable of trades. No, it was really only kind of one step up from being a sex worker. It wasn't was. It? Yeah. It was looked 
it was frowned upon by um by proper society because I think they just sort of assumed that all of that hanky panky was happening behind oh, the scenes. Absolutely, there was so much nudity involved. Yeah, and, and I'm like those artists, you can't trust them. Yeah, so uh, they yeah they basically just assumed that everyone was having an affair with everybody mm. else, and you couldn't possibly just sit for a portrait. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that was true. People were, <laughs> but <really> anyway, were. <laughs> they were they were doing that. But that's not the point. Yeah. But but Deverell knew that he would need some assistance because his intentions were above board. Because even though I've just painted that beautiful picture of that moment, yeah. Deverell was actually, even though we've just painted that, he was actually looking for a fairly plain kind oh, of beauty. Because he wants the that naturalness, the yes, everydayness. Exactly, because it's truth to nature. So not looking for this idealised, romanticised concept of beauty that that she eventually becomes to be known as, mm. but actually looking for a plain, true beauty. Interesting. So he was mostly struck, not so much by the beauty of her face, but by the beauty of her hair. Oh. Because this is something that comes back again and again with her. She had this shock of, of beautiful, red, fiery, copper hair. Yeah. So he gets his mother to help, and they basically go and ask Lizzie's mother if it will be all right for her to sit for this port for this Ab- painting above board. It's all above board, so you know you have to get the mums to talk to each other so that everybody thinks you know it's okay. Yeah, everything's fine here. And this was also, and her mother would have known, the whole family would have known, a pretty good economic opportunity yeah. because you could earn more modelling in like an afternoon that you could in like six months in a hat shop. Six months. It was insane. Wow. The money you could make modelling. Wow. Be- because obviously most of these um, students at the Royal Academy already came from wealth yeah, anyway. They you know. had to. You're not yeah. going to be a poor urchin and get into the Royal Academy yeah. no, no matter how good your art is. Yeah. So Lizzie agreed and she sat for the painting. But actually she even got to keep uh, working at the milliner's shop to begin with part-time just in case the modelling didn't work out. So that's actually quite good of them, isn't it? Very sensible. That's very good of them. But it was through modelling for Deverell that she obviously met the pre-Raphaelites and mm. started modelling for them. The rest of the Brotherhood. Met everyone else. And, of course, this was also where she met Rosetti. Rosetti. Dun, dun, dun. Dante Rosetti. Now, Rosetti's the kind of guy that any 19-year-old girl would fall for. <laughs> but I like to think that, you know, when you've had a few years of experience, you wouldn't fall for him. Because <laughs> he's just such a... Anyway. <laughs> yeah, but she's she's 19. She's 19. And he's this, he's like... poet. He's a poet and painter from this really liberal family yeah. full of scholars and artists and yeah. writers. And he's and got this Ita- dark Italian yeah. heritage. I yeah. mean, like 19-year-old me would have fallen for that hook, line and sinker. Absolutely. Totally and utterly. I might still fall for him even though I would know better. <laughs> but you should know better. In the world you should steer clear of the Rossettis because <laughs> uh, he's definitely the worst. But, um, but she began to sit for him as well, and he uh, fell madly in love with her yeah. and she with him. So uh, they took up together. Now, um, Malay, as we mentioned before, famously went to um, great lengths to get his uh, painting of Ophelia, which obviously yeah. Lizzie modelled for. We know the one. She's prone in the river. There's the flowers all about her. All those meaningful flowers. 
And it's the most, it's probably the most iconic painting uh, with Siddle in it that mm. exists. Um, and I was listening to something recently um, about the Tate Gallery and they were saying that it's one of the paintings where on a daily basis people will just walk up to the information desk and say, where do I find Ophelia? Ah. And that made me feel really like a such a, a loser nerd because that's what I did. You did do that. I did exactly you that. You literally went up to the desk and said, where will I find Ophelia? That's precisely <laughs> what happened when I went to the Tate. I what like, a where nerd. Where will I find Ophelia? And I thought I was really original. Turns out I'm not at all an individual. Everyone just wants to see that painting. Well, it's iconic. It's, it is iconic. And in order to do it, Millet did something very different to begin with. Something that the Impressionists were kind of like, you know, famed for, but that the Raphaelites were actually doing, pre-Raphaelites were actually doing about 10 years before mm. the Impressionists, mm. where they went outside of the studio to paint landscapes. Yep. So rather than sitting in the studio and painting a landscape from sketches that you made, they actually packed up their easels and their paints and they went out to the countryside because, of course, trains were a big thing there mm. as well. And they sat out in the countryside for hours painting the environment. And then they would go back to the studio later to, to finish it off. But they wanted to capture the light. They yeah. wanted to capture that sense of the world as it the was. The real. Truth to nature. Yeah. So um, he came back to the studio to paint the figure of Ophelia in yeah. after painting all the rest. And in order to paint this... Lizzie lay in a bathtub. Now, this is a very famous story yeah, about Lizzie. It's kind of a horrifying story. It is. Um, so Lizzie posed in a bathtub for this in an, an antique wedding dress. And the water was apparently drawn from the Thames itself. So, so Oh, like, God, it's probably disgusting. Yeah. So like gross river water. Oh, no. And it was, only, it was heated by a series of candles and lamps underneath mm. it. Now, this just seems romantic. That seems lovely, doesn't it? Like super, oh, chill in this bath <laughs> while you paint me in yeah, this beautiful gown. All these candles underneath us. But no, not no. at all. Because Malay wasn't interested in her romantic no. at all. At all. He wanted to paint his painting. And he was so engrossed in doing it that he didn't notice as one by one well, the, the candles, candles went out. out. <laughs> She's just like, but she was too afraid to say anything, wasn't she? So she just like laid there shivering. Exactly. In this fucking freezing cold bathtub yeah for five hours five hours because as we said before right so the money she was making from modeling was worth half a year's wage mm-hmm. possibly even more at the time she she didn't want to risk this job oh, i know? feel cold already just i know can you imagine it? it's making me feel cold it's so horrible <laughs> it's making me feel cold too but so she just lay there without oh. saying anything for five hours she wasn't even just like Excuse me, could you, Malay, could you maybe just just light the candles again? <laughs> Until he finally noticed what had happened and thought, oh, shit, fuck. <laughs> I've nearly killed the woman. And pulled her out and, of course, she developed pneumonia. Of course, yes. And it's one of the most famous cases of pneumonia in art history yeah. ever, I think. And um, her family, her father demanded that Malay pay the doctor's bills. Yes. You could kind of understand. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Malay was good enough to... <laughs> To compromise and pay for some of the for some of the doctor's bills, but it also kind of taps into this romanticizing of of these kinds of figures, doesn't it? Like they, especially that like thin, waifish, sickly beauty mm-hmm. that was such a big thing in Victorian, um, yeah, kind of culture. And and sadly, this it, this is part of the story of Lizzie's life was her ill health. So this bout of of pneumonia is only sort of the starting point of her story of of ill health that goes mm. on for the rest of her life. She was thin and frail and doctors 
often suspected that she had tuberculosis, but there was nothing to kind of prove that she did. And so she was described as sort of waifishly thin Mm. and she was very pale. But this, again, played, as you said, it played into that kind of notion of that very fragile beauty, Mm -hmm. I suppose. So Rosetti fell in love with this waifish Of course, because that was the ideal. And she's so tragically beautiful as well. And because he thinks... Tragically ill. Yeah. and... And because he thinks that he's... Dante incarnate. Um, <laughs> he sort of starts to think of her as his Beatrice yes, as well, of and kind of make this romanticized version of Dante and Beatrice. Mm-hmm. And Dante was, of course, the famous 14th century Italian poet who wrote Dante's Inferno. Correct. Well, just Inferno. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> in which uh, the character of Beatrice guides Virgil through. The underworld. The underworld. Anyway, that's a tangent. But so in a kind of a way, he kind of starts to idealise her as this spiritual, mm. tragic, romantic And especially that image of the woman who is leading the man through the underworld. This is sort of, I guess, in that psychological sense of the tapping into the unconscious and creative energy and that coming up from underneath, going into the underbelly of whatever it is to bring out you know the creative spark yeah that's right so the muse yeah that's exactly what she plays to him here in becoming his Beatrice she becomes his muse the one that can funnel his genius for him what a lucky woman (laughs) wouldn't we all be so lucky to funnel someone's genius Uh oh that sounds like a euphemism um (laughs) yeah yeah and it kind of kind of is (laughs) but she began to sit for Rossetti constantly and he made thousands and thousands of sketches and paintings and studies of her and he also began to control who she sat for yeah and wouldn't let her sit for any of the other painters were they lovers or was he just in love with her well they became lovers yeah so through this through painting her they did become lovers yeah and it was reciprocal it wasn't just him being super creepy and stalky but in refusing to let her sit for other painters he is controlling her mm. economically yeah, as well. Absolutely. So their whole relationship is a very troubling, very difficult one. And well, he's jealous. And she's jealous. Entirely. They're both jealous of each other. Yeah. It's, this is the unhealthy one of the unhealthiest yeah. relationships in the history of art. <laughs> Just so everyone And there's knows. a lot of unhealthy relationships in the oh, history of art. Oh my word, there are. <laughs> but the upshot, I suppose, of her shitty relationship with shitty Rosetti was that she admitted that she had her own ambition mm. to paint. And when she did, he fully encouraged her and she became his pupil. Yeah. He became her tutor. I wonder how much of that is, oh, look, I want to think the best, but there's also a part of me that sort of sees it as a, is it something of a condescension as well? You know, like, oh, you beautiful darling, you want to paint. Okay. Isn't that quaint? Yeah. A woman who'd like to paint. Isn't that quaint? <laughs> sure, darling, yeah. I'll show you a thing or two. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, his teaching style was basically to let her just self-teach anyway. Okay, so he wasn't even a good teacher. So he wasn't even a good teacher. He was a okay, pretty you terrible... you go over in that corner and you try, darling. He you was, try. Exactly. You give it a, your best shot. Because, you know, obviously men of the time had the opportunity to go, well, men of a certain wealth, not every man on the street, but they had the opportunity to go to somewhere like the Royal Academy and learn painting from scratch. Yeah. So when you look at Lizzie's paintings, which I encourage you to do, you can see the gulf in difference between the men around Mm. her who were painting and her 
painting because she didn't have no. that opportunity. She didn't have the, the liberty of going. I suppose especially being from a working class family as she was, you Precisely. know, at least a, a middle or upper class girl may have had some lessons. Yeah, but she had nothing. And yeah. I mean, there were famously Anna Mary Howard, who she was a painter and writer and at the time, and she was petitioning for women to be more widely accepted as painters. And she was arguing for women to be taken seriously as cultural producers, mm. which not many people thought of at the time. Women weren't taken seriously as cultural producers. Their writing and their painting was seen as tri- it's trivial. Yeah. It's um, the domestic, it's private. It's not, it's not culture, yeah. it's nature. And their writing it was often seen as trivial romances, yeah. you know. So it, they weren't taken seriously as genuine cultural producers. And so there was a movement uh, moving up around trying to take women as seriously as painters. But sadly, it didn't change enough in Lizzie's lifetime to really allow her to have much success as a painter. What were some of the subjects of her work? So much like Rossetti, so again, he, I think, hugely influenced Mm. um, her. She painted the same sort of romantic things as he did. So they were going back to, it's interesting because I guess the pre-Raphaelite manifesto was about truth to nature, but Rossetti and Lizzie kind of were going back to truth to nature in in terms of their their illustration, their painting, but in a medieval fashion. Yeah, because a lot of the subjects are very medieval. Exactly. So, And even when they're painting classical figures, they have this sort of medieval dress. Like I'm thinking of Circe, for example. Precisely. um, Which which is is not Rossetti, but it is a pre-Raphaelite painting. Yeah. And she is in a medieval green, like medieval dress. Yeah. Yeah. And so much of their paintings were on medieval subjects. So all of Dante's work influenced them hugely. They also became obsessed with King Arthur. So mm. Arthurian legend was huge. That was something they painted over and over again. So there's this romantic throwback to this kind of idealised concept of a better life in yeah. the past. A so simpler time when <laughs> knights were, women were pure and good and knights were, you know, chivalrous yeah. and all that sort of so thing. So it's an idealised subject matter in a truth to nature aesthetic. Yeah. 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 So painting that. As realistically yeah. <laughs> as you could, having not been to the Middle Medieval, Ages. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. So this was a lot of their subject matter. And the thing is, is that when you look at her paintings, the paintings themselves, you can kind of see that level of anatomy. You know, she wasn't being taught anatomy mm. and colour and lighting. She had to figure this out for herself. Yeah. So, for example, like her painting Lady Affixing a Pennant, which is a medieval subject and shows a lady helping a med- medieval knight before a battle. Um, I mean, that's much more... It's actually kind of got a bit of a sense of impressionism to it because it's the, the lady's arm is not quite right. Mm-hmm. Like the, the anatomy isn't quite there, but the colour is there. The use of colour is beautiful. And you can sort of... You can see how she's taking trying to take that on and put that on the canvas but it's her pencil drawings that I think that are much more refined than her paintings because it's in her pencil drawings you can see that detail and that skill and talent coming through one of her drawings uh, lovers listening to music is an illustration that's really quite beautiful and even though again perhaps not exactly correct by perspective or anatomy well some of the paintings by even Malay, you look at them and they're not entirely correct by anatomy or, yeah. you know, and this is kind of the charge that's thrown against her art is some mm. people kind of have referred to her art as primitive Ooh. in comparison 
to in comparison to her male contemporaries. That's a bad word. It is. And this is the thing that frustrates me though is because I because you have to think about the fact that she was teaching herself how to do this. Yeah. She didn't have an academy full of teachers showing mm. her how to do everything. She didn't have she couldn't have models sit for her. Mm. You know, she didn't have those kinds of opportunities that the male artists around her had yep. in yep. order to kind of refine those sorts of skills. So it seems like a fairly unfair charge to lay mm. against her art. And I think one of my favorite paintings of her though is her self-portrait. I think I love her self-portrait most because what this her so please look it up by all means because what her self-portrait shows I think is the way she saw herself mm. so it's kind of just a cameo it's just her face and shoulders and it's she's not a medieval maiden she's not Dante's Beatrice she's a Victorian woman her hair is done in Victorian mm. style um, there's just a very plain kind of greenish background yep. and it's not romanticized she hasn't beautified herself Mm, she's really not she at all yeah and I think it's for me I think it's one of her most telling portraits because it's not glorified it's not romantic it's honest and it's her for once representing herself yeah instead of how all of these men around her were representing her again and again in their paintings and it certainly contrasts with portraits of her by others where she is kind of paler her skin is softer um she's got the kind of doughy eyelids yeah you know and her hair is loose and cascading whereas here it's confined and and restrained and i think this also speaks to something about the domestic side of lizzie or her desire for a domestic life Mm. because she wanted a lot of that she wanted a domestic life and rosetti said he would marry her and well well he was from a certain background and she was from another background and never the twain shall meet this is right so he actually did eventually marry her but it took 10 years and it wasn't just like this kind of off to this like this kind of very tiny basically going to the registry office style kind of wedding yeah and before and that was a long time later in the story right because at by this point she had moved in with him they were living together (sighs) scandalous and this is so scandalous and she's putting her reputation on the line to live with this man unmarried and her family constantly wanted to know when they were going to marry Mm. she wanted to know when they were going to marry and rosetti put it off and put it off and put it off and of course yes this was primarily because she was from a much lower class than he was he knew his family would not be accepting, mm. including his sister. Christina. A famous poet herself. I do love me some Christina Rossetti. Well, she didn't like Lizzie. Oh, well, interestingly, okay, you haven't kind of come to it yet, but I wonder if there's some Lizzie in Goblin Market. I think there is. Yes. yes. That whole kind of sister relationship. Bit of addiction. Definitely, yeah. I think Lizzie is a a character in a lot of Christina's Mm. poetry. Mm. Her brother is as well. I think that relationship inspired a lot of her work. (laughs) But despite this, she didn't want Rossetti to marry Lizzie. I suppose she's still beneath him, really, as far as their family is concerned. Yeah, but they became inseparable and they had little pet names for each other. She was Guggums and he was Gug. <laughs> Just so you know. 
kind of cute, isn't cute. it? That was but cute. another way that his sort of controlling influence can be seen is that he changed the spelling of her name at this time. Oh yes, as well. from two L's dropped to an one. L. Yeah, weird. I don't, don't know why, <laughs> but he just decided that she needed to drop an L. It would be better for her as an artist to drop yeah. an L. But he was genuinely, if he wasn't very helpful with her, with teaching her how to paint, he was very encouraging of her painting and he did genuinely think she had talent. Somebody else who thought she had talent? Ruskin. Exactly. Yeah. Art critic extraordinaire of the day and he became her patron. Oh, wow. Which is actually really quite amazing. Yeah. He saw so much potential and talent in her work that – it led him to um, take her on board, and I have somewhere for how much? A patronage of £150 a year. This is an extraordinary sum of money yeah, back then. Yeah, exactly. So economically a fabulous boon mm. for her. Mm. Um, made Rossetti feel a bit shit, though, because he actually wanted Ruskin's patronage. <gasps> no way. So Ruskin wasn't... No. Oh, shit. No, I he, didn't realise that. He went straight to Lizzie. <gasps> Oh dear. Yeah. Now this might also have had something to do with the fact that Ruskin wasn't a big fan of Rossetti because of his friendship with Malay and the fact that Malay ran off with Ruskin's wife. Oh, but yeah, he's probably not going to give. <laughs> so I don't think Rossetti was ever really. <laughs> but Ruskin and Rossetti, they did have quite a good um, relationship, and and Ruskin was interested in Rossetti's paintings. Uh, he kind of actually did turn his attention to Rossetti after Malay fucked off with his wife, but it was really Lizzie that he took on yeah. um, and looked after monetarily so he also was the one that was instrumental in trying to convince lizzie that she should go to europe for her health her health had been failing and she, when she moved in with rossetti he lived in this crappy little apartment in um, chatham place which was cold and dark and dank and probably didn't really help with Lizzie's health. I don't know what you're expecting of an artist in London. In London in the mid 1800s. You're quite right, actually. I don't think there's an opportunity to not be cold and dark and dank. That's the there. way that it is. That's true. How else do you produce art? I know. You need to, in, you have to, you, you have know, to live in a hovel. In a little hovel. It's not the bohemian life, otherwise. Tuck yourself away, get TB. Yep. It's what you do. Well, unfortunately, this is how the story plays out. Um, <laughs> she she was not well. And reports at the time as well suggest that it wasn't simply that she was fragile or mm. ill. It was also that she possibly was anorexic. Oh, yeah. As well. So there are a few clues to the fact that she may have had an eating disorder in some of the letters that were bandied about at the time. Rossetti hinted in letters to his friends about her not eating. Um, in a letter to another painter, Ford Maddox Brown, he said that Lizzie was in no better health, never eating anything to speak of. Uh, while in another letter he wrote that Lizzie was getting all right again and would be quite set up, I believe, if not for an unfortunate lack of appetite, which keeps her mostly fasting and prevents her gaining much strength. Mm. So there's a lot of... It's difficult to know, but a lot of biographers have suggested that she um, did have an eating disorder. And it's also probably the type of, I don't know, I guess this, at firstly, it does play into, again, that tragic wayfish beauty mm-hmm. muse figure, yeah. but also even the medical kind of treatments at the time, like, uh, you know, she very well may have been prescribed a diet of bread soaked in milk. Yeah. You know, like yeah. that's the kind of thing that they'd 
yeah. did. Well, one, doc- one doctor diagnosed her as simply as having previously had quite a sort of a, a quiet mental attitude, but, but recently have been quite excited by the art around her. Mm-hmm. And that was her problem. Of course. Previously, too she much was, stimulation. Too much stimulation. Previously, she was led quite a dull life. But now she's been mentally awakened and that's made her quite ill. Yeah. <laughs> so they really had no concept, no clue whatsoever. But despite this, she continued working on her art and she actually did exhibit with uh, the pre-Raphaelites. Mm. She was the only female to exhibit with the pre-Raphaelites um, in a pre-Raphaelite exhibition. So she did put her art out there. The other pre-Raphaelites did take her seriously. But, of course, as I said, in her own lifetime, you know, Ruskin took her seriously. But it wasn't really the time for Lizzie to be able to make it on her own as an independent artist. Just this is not the way the world Mm. functioned. And it's taken, you know, it's taken 150 years Mm. for her art to actually be valued for, for what it is. But she also wrote poetry as well. Yeah. And so she continued her, her relationship with, with Rossetti and she continued to write poetry in earnest at this time as well. William Gaunt, who's an art, who was an art historian, he said some wonderfully patronising shit about, <laughs> about her Oh, poetry. I bet he did. He what did. did he say? Well, he called her letters, the few surviving letters that she had, dull and flat because, Ooh. you know... Why not just insult someone's letters? Okay, sure. But he called her poetry her little tragic verses. Oh, oh, that is so patronising, isn't it? It's Isn't it horrendous? Little tragic verses. Her little tragic verses. Oh. Because, you know, when a guy, when a, when a male poet writes a, a tragic poem, that's genius. Yeah. But if a lady gives it a shot, then it's a little, little you know, tragic oh, verse. Oh, thank you for your pathetic efforts. <laughs> In this vein. What would you know about the human condition? I know. It's so terrible, isn't it? But her poetry was never published in her lifetime. By now, anyway, this is sort of the height of that that first iteration of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. And by this time, sort of an unofficial sisterhood had formed as well. Mm. So this was Lizzie, obviously, and Fanny Cornforth, who was another model that Rossetti met in 1856 and uh, had a relationship with for the rest of his life, basically. And Annie Miller, who was mostly involved with Hunt, but also um, with Rossetti as Mm. well. And are these models also artists or are they creating a sisterhood of of fellow muses? Yes. Like the wags of... Yeah, they're basically... Yeah, the wags wags (laughs) of the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. Cool. That's wives and girlfriends for those of you who don't know. Just checking, just making sure. And so as I mentioned, on Ruskin's advice, Lizzie did go to Europe for a short time to try to recover her health. She also, of course, was medicated with... Lord no! Yeah, I knew you were going to guess that! Everybody yeah. loves the Lord no! <laughs> it's the Victorian <laughs> English Times. It's the drug of choice. It is, and so she was addicted to Are it. Are you feeling under the weather? You need some opiates. That's Are you, you melancholy? Me. Have some opiates. <laughs> Having trouble sleeping? <laughs> Have some opiates. Are you too stimulated by all of the art around you? And all the opiates you're having? Have some opiates. Yeah. Oh, the bloody Victorians. They did love themselves some laudanum. I hope somebody takes sound bites of that and turns it into an actual <laughs> ad for opiates. That would be great. But while she was gone trying to actually just, you know, maybe get healthier in a warmer climate, she 
the problem was that this didn't help her mental health because no. the entire time she was there. What, Rossetti's having an affair with Fanny? Yeah. 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 Although at the time she probably would have thought he was having an affair with Annie Miller, which oh. probably was also, also correct. <laughs> so even though she was there, you know, trying to get better, she was paranoid. Yeah. Terrified. Terrified that he was running Terrified around. and high. Yeah. It's a bad combination. It's not a good combination to be. And apparently when she, she returned, she she threw a bunch of his uh, sketches and portraits that involved Annie out of the window. Oh. So another very tragic wayfish muse thing to do. That's right. Yeah. And a fit of jealousy. Good. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah, but it's but you know her mental health obviously <laughs> not good. Didn't it did it didn't help her physical health either. No, um, certainly not. And Gosh. and I guess to another extent as well is that Rosetti might genuinely just have been done with Lizzie, mm. you know, and not had the courage to end it with her. Um, because he might have been worried that that would just make her even more unhealthy. Yeah. So he continued to stick with her for like the next ten ten years. Ten years. You know, running around behind her back with yeah. other models. It's not a happy time. And, you know, perhaps Lizzie herself may have wanted to leave Rosetti as well and may not have had the courage or the strength to do it. One of her poems... A um, little tragic verse. One of her little tragic verses. Sorry. Which is actually quite tragic. Oh, no. It's a poem called Worn Out. Oh, um, Worn Out? Yeah. And Oh, God, I can already feel it. Should I read it to you? Yeah. Right. Just a bit. Okay. A bit of it. Just Let's a bit give it. us a taste. Okay. I cannot give to thee the love I gave so long ago, the love that turned and struck me down amid the blinding snow. I can but give a failing heart and weary eyes of pain, a faded mouth that cannot smile and may not laugh again. Yet keep thine arms around me, love, until I fall to sleep. Then leave me saying no goodbye, lest I may wake and weep. (gasps) Oh, goodness me. Wow, that's telling, isn't it? It is. Oh, my goodness. So it's kind of like I have no joy with you. Yeah. The love is not the same it used to be. But but, but hold me because... But don't leave me because if you leave me, I'll fall apart. Yeah. It's, it is pretty true. <laughs> it's more than a little verse, though. Yeah. Like her poetry is really quite moving and quite beautiful and heart-wrenching yeah. stuff but you know in without wanting to kind of conflate an artist's art with yeah. you know without wanting to put a biographical lens on it i think we can put a bit of a biographical i think we can, think we can. lens yeah. on it but by um, may of 1860 he finally did marry her Oh, I thought you were going to say he finally left her. No. Oh, my God. If no, only. This seems like a terrible idea. Getting married is maybe not the best step Because I didn't know that they married, but yeah, so I thought they were already married. It was a very small ceremony yeah. with just a few witnesses, and apparently she was so weak she had to be carried <gasps> there. Fuck she couldn't off. even walk to the church. Oh, my God. But the actual marriage rallied her spirits a little, and she wrote more poetry at this time, and she tried to paint again. And the by the following year, she was pregnant with a daughter. Oh, but that's not going to go well because oh. she's such a tiny little tragic waif. The child was stillborn. Yeah. I'm sorry, this is a very tragic story, isn't it's it? It's just capital T. It's, it's, it's not getting happier. And, of course, Lizzie fell into what we would now know as postpartum yeah. depression, quite obviously. And she did become pregnant again later that same year, but this baby too mm. wasn't to live. She was clearly not healthy. She was not well. Yeah. She was not well at all. Um, and in February of 1862, so the story goes, Rossetti had been out to dinner with a friend and fellow poet, um, Charles Swinburne. And on returning home, he found Lizzie quite unwell. 
but he also had a teaching position at the time, so he left again to teach. By the time he came home, Lizzie was unconscious and he couldn't wake her up. And so she had, whether intentionally or not, taken Mm. an overdose of our favourite opiate. That's what they should put on the bottle. Our favourite opiate. And the doctor was called and the doctor Mm. said he couldn't do anything. I guess it's really hard to know, isn't it, how intentional that would have been? Well, so it is hard to know. But myth and legend surround this story. Yeah. Um, And apparently Rossetti called for three more doctors who all said that they couldn't help her. Apparently, even they tried to pump her stomach at one point, Mm. didn't work. And by the early morning, she had passed away. Now, the extra part of this legend is that apparently, the story goes, Lizzie had pinned a suicide note to her address. And rumours circulated that Ford Maddox Brown had suggested that Rossetti destroy it before anyone found it. Because, of course, suicide, yeah. illegal, you can't have a proper burial, mortal sin. mortal sin, and to kind of quash that idea. And I guess also to protect the reputation of mm. everybody involved, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, including himself. Yeah. So the overdose was ruled to be mm. an accident. So it was a short life. She burnt out bright and How she burnt out she? young. 40 um, Died at 33. Oh, my God. Which is... That's so young. So young. But she also, famously, her story doesn't end with her death. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Now, this is a bit of a creepy story. It is. I do know this Mm. one. Yes. Um, So this is another famous story. So that Bartholia story Mm -hmm. is a famous one. This is also a famous story as well because at the funeral, in, I guess, genuine grief, look, I'll give Rossetti that briefly. And I'm being harsh on Rossetti, but, look, I've read plenty of other biographies about him, so he he was a bit trash. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I would say he was self-important. Yes. He was a product of of his upbringing, his social class, his wealth, and his fame. Yeah. Yep. He probably wouldn't fly today, I reckon. (laughs) I would hope not. But he, um, in, a, in a genuine fit of grief, I think, but also in a very epic, grand gesture, he oh. placed his notebook of poems in the coffin. Yeah. Laid it on her hair, which was all combed out, beautifully presented. Because in death, you need to be beautiful. You need to be beautiful. beautiful. We know this from Ophelia. That's right. Of exactly. course. The epitome of the beautiful mm. death. And this was her moment, or her real mm. moment of Ophelianess. So he laid the, the book, um, his little notebook of poems that he had written um, over the last uh, 10 or so years in the coffin with her. Now, they were buried, done and dusted, you'd think. Now, for the next few years, Rossetti's health declined. He put on weight, his eyesight began to fail, he became increasingly obsessed with the occult. Yes, he sure did! Hooray! This is where I get to come in. <laughs> Lauren's been so excited because, of course, spiritualism! He did, he tried to contact her. He did, yes. He attended seances. Seances. Sorry, on seances. He attended seances. All the rage. And apparently, even Fanny acted as a medium through which Lizzie spoke. Yeah, I heard about this, which is kind of weird. Imagine, like, one of your lovers. Oh, okay. There are so many. Very weird. There's so many levels to the weirdness of that because there's the whole, the passive receptor, the medium, Mm -hmm. for the active agent of the spirit to come through and speak through. And then there's the whole power dynamics of relationships 
and being the lover and the other lover and the other lover and they're all inside of each other and it's all weird. It's very weird. I, I have no idea what she said. Yeah. But I would love to know what oh, she said. I would like to be have been in on that room. It would have been amazing. Spiritualism was pretty popular with a lot of poets around this time. Mm-hmm. It was. There was a lot of brouhaha. I feel like you've got a story you want to share. Oh, it's like pretty tangential. It's not really about, it's not actually about. You um, can do it. <laughs> Look, if people don't want to listen, they can just skip well, it. It's about Rossetti, but it's about the fact that this was really taking off amongst poets because, of course, I guess it posed so many interesting questions about life and death and mm-hmm. the nature yep. of nature and art and yeah. and which poets you could contact from the past <laughs> so elizabeth barrett browning who is of course a famous poet she rivaled tennyson who was the pre-raphaelite's idol yeah she was really rivaled him for poet laureate back in the day mm. now her and her hubby robert get on rob Robert, Robert Browning, they got really, really into spiritualism, but for two very different reasons. So like Elizabeth Barrett Browning was so super interested. She was like really intrigued by it. She'd been very religious her whole life, was super like, oh, interesting. I want to see what this is. Robert, meanwhile, he was like, you are all charlatans. You are all frauds. Oh, yeah. You are all fakes. He wrote the poem, Mr. Sludge, the Medium, oh. which was like a denigration of mediumship. And that poem was based on the famous medium D.D. Hume, Daniel oh, yes. Douglas Hume. Who I think we've mentioned before. We have because he came up with Florence, old Floco, yeah. Florence mm-hmm. Cook. Um, because William, her patron, he also hung out with Daniel Douglas Hume and therefore was also at seances with the Brownings. And mm-hmm. anyway, Daniel Douglas Hume was the uh, person at the centre of this poem who it was based on and apparently it's entirely possible that again robert browning was not well he was motivated by his interest in the fact that he thought it was all bullshit but he was also apparently super jealous because he believed that the whole mediumship thing was a mask like to hide the affair between dd hume and elizabeth barrett browning so yeah he thought that there was a whole bunch of hanky-panking going on when the lights went down well they may well have been and dd hume was totally hitting on elizabeth barrett browning (gasps) which also might suggest why she was so keen on spiritualism oh that's so interesting i think there's a whole episode on liz yeah the other liz that liz so i know that that's a tangent but i was thinking about romantic poets well it's and this circle yeah. of poets this well, particular it. circle because there are so many artists from this period of history that you know we look back to and so many of them were fascinated by the, by spiritualism at the time mm. and of course rosetti i mean as such a tragic figure who's living in the past anyway like the past from 400 years ago you yeah. can you can imagine the appeal for him yeah. of this whole new world of the occult and the romanticism there yeah. too but also it wasn't just that it, it was also that to be perfectly honest he thought he was basically being haunted by mm-hmm. Lizzie and he heard her voice one thing I didn't mention earlier was that Rossetti was a, a mad animal lover so was Lizzie Lizzie had a pet bullfinch and that that lived with them <laughs> and Rossetti over a period of years he owned all sorts of fucking weird animals he's obsessed with wombats he had <laughs> had a couple of wombats he had a kangaroo 
He had a wallaby. He had, for some reason, it's like Australian he animals. He loved Australian all, mammals. They were all the rage at the time because they were so they weird. Were new. And they, they were like, new. they'd only recently discovered them on the, I mean. But they'd only recently taken examples back yeah. to kind of like show them like, yeah. hey, look, look, look at these funny animals. Yeah. So, um, yeah, over a period of time, he owned a whole bunch of different animals. But Lizzie, her pet was this bullfinch. And and birds are an interesting sort of pet for Victorian women because there was this idea, you know, spinster women should have a, a bird because it's a gentle, feminine animal and you can lavish your love on it that you're not able, you know, you don't have a husband or a child to lavish your love on. So have a pet. Just a bird. Have a pet. Have a bird. Um, but not and, cats. Well, you could have a cat or a dog as well, but a mm. bird was a very feminine animal to yeah, have. Yeah, interesting. And also you could keep it locked in a cage. Yes. And that's, women should. It's very symbolic. It's very symbolic. And a lot of paintings with Lizzie involve birds, et cetera, et cetera. And so he thought that Lizzie was talking to him through birds. You oh. Was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Birds spoke to him in Lizzie's voice. Yeah. And he was being haunted by her Her apparition being haunted by her voice and of course you can imagine as an artist her face is everywhere Mm -hmm. in all of that art so he also got himself his own addiction to chloral uh which was supposedly to help you sleep without dreams because obviously he also dreamt of lizzie but he liked to take that with whiskey (laughs) so you can imagine that was quite strong and he, at this time as well, was not just haunted by Lizzie, but was also haunted by the idea of the poems that he had put the, in the coffin. The poems that he put in the coffin, and he's now regretting it. He's regretting it because he's thinking, you know what, they were the best poems I ever wrote. And now they're gone forever. And his health is failing and he can't write new ones. Or and he wants those ones back. Are they? Well, gone forever. We shall see. So he overdosed. On chloral. Oh, shit. Much like old Lizzie had overdosed. Um, so he went to Penkill Castle in Scotland to recover. And he was there with the Scottish painter William Bell Scott. Now, one day they were walking in the grounds of the castle. I'm just telling you this story because this is a great creepy story that mm-hmm. I think you'll appreciate. And it also kind of just um, shows how, how Lizzie kind of lives on. Uh, they were walking in the grounds of the castle and a bullfinch sat in the path in front of them. And it wouldn't move. As they got closer, it sat, simply sat, sat still until they were right on top of it. And Rosetti bent down and picked it up and held it. He said to Bell Scott, well, Bell Scott was like, okay, well, it must just be a tame finch that's yeah. gotten out from somewhere. But Rosetti insisted that it was Lizzie's spirit. He was like, yeah. no, this bird is Lizzie. It's definitely She's Lizzie. Come to me. Come to me. Bell Scott made, made him leave the bird behind. He was like, put the bird down. <laughs> Mate. Rosetti put the bird, bird the down bird. and step away from the bird and let's go home. So when they returned to the castle, they were told that while they were out, the door chime, which was one of those big, old, huge ones on a rope that uh-huh. you like needed to kind of pull and swing on. Yeah. It was heavy. You needed to tug that thing in order to make it ring. It had rung while they were out. But when they went to investigate, no one was there. No one was there. And when they corroborated their stories, they discovered that it happened at exactly the same time that Rosetti had found the bird. So he was convinced that it was an omen. I think that's a great story. It's a good story. It's a great creepy story. Yeah. So he was soon convinced by another artist, also a bit of a villain, Hal, that he should recover the poems. So they began to... Exhume the grave of Lizzie Siddle. Digging Lizzie up. But in secret, 
Now, it's such a secret that this story has obviously become one of the most famous stories in our history. Such a secret. Now, Rossetti wasn't present at the digging up, which I think is probably for the best. Yeah, probably. It happened in the middle of the night, as all good grave digging should. Because it was supposed to be secret, obviously. A fire was lit. And, well, obviously, because you don't want to attract anyone's attention who's, like, walking through the... No. Yeah. Um, no, you can't dig up a grave in daylight. That's right. It can't be done. No, you can't do that. It's very against the rules. So, I mean, he had permission to dig the body up. Right? Oh. He got permission to dig the body up without even having to go through her family. Oh, so gosh. they didn't even know that it was happening. But I suppose they've got Rosetti's permission. That's her husband. Surely that's all yeah, they Yeah, exactly. Need. So they never knew. So yeah. he got permission to dig it up. And also it had to be checked to make sure that it wasn't like a will or, a you know, some kind of... Uh, legal document. Mm. He had to prove that it was just poems, uh-huh. man. It's just useless yeah. poems. That's all I want. Um, so a fire was lit beside the grave, obviously to provide enough light to work by, and the coffin was dug up. Now the legend goes that inside by the firelight, Lizzie was completely unchanged. Mm. She was just as beautiful as she had been in life and that her hair had, had conti- kept growing. continued to grow and had filled the coffin with oh. masses of her copper red hair. Yep. And that some of the strands came away with the book when it was removed mm. and returned to Rossetti. Look, it's a nice story. Yeah. Creepy, creepy, lovely story. Is it a nice story? I don't think it's a nice story. I think it's it's capital R romantic. Yeah, I suppose, in a way. But, of course, the secret digging up was entirely big news was mm. totally unsecret and the publication of the poems was eagerly awaited of course it was everyone oh wanted to like the it's the coffin poems. poems they're the grave poems and the response was fairly positive um <laughs> which i suppose makes digging up your dead wife totally worth it you know what though so i have been to highgate a couple of times mm. and on the tour i remember going they took us to rossetti's grave and it was this big thing they're like oh now we're going to rossetti's grave and i was so excited I was like, oh my god yeah. it's rossetti's grave but also i assumed that he would have been buried like in the family plot so mm. i was like excited i was just like oh, and i'm gonna see christina's grave yeah. and it's gonna be the whole thing and it wasn't it was just rossetti and i remember being so angry that they made no mention of any of this stuff. Yeah. And I was like... Why would they the not f- tell you that? Fuck? Yeah, like, okay, A, do you know the... I mean, maybe it depends on the guide. Yeah. Look, maybe if you get a good guide, they'll give you the good Rossetti grave story. But I just remember standing in front of that grave, having built my anticipation up so high, <laughs> and then being like, wait, what? Hang on a minute. No, no, no. Okay, so great. This is Dante, but where's the rest of them? Where's everyone else? Where's everybody else? Why aren't you telling me about the others? Where's Christina? Where's Lizzie? You What's going on? You would think the digging up of Lizzie would be the story they're going to tell you. You would think When you're so. doing a tour of the cemetery. Yeah. I mean, it was Dante's grave. They weren't at the like Rosetti family grave. I feel like they should there. Yeah, well, yes. they, were, they were definitely buried separately when Rosetti died. Mm. But, you know, I guess, you know... Um, desecrating your wife's grave <laughs> if you're gonna make a romantic gesture like that romantic gesture would have been great if you just stuck to it it's very like victorian though they loved that stuff yeah but the digging up you know you've, you've ruined the whole idea but the thing is is that you know rosetti's poems made him a lot of money well of course lizzie's poems made her no money mm. in her lifetime um and they weren't published until after she died uh, they were actually, first of all, put together by her brother-in-law, Rosetti's brother, William. William. Who uh, found them after her death and put them together into an edition, except that apparently he edited them, made a lot of changes, and he also cut out the bits he thought were too sad. Oh, no. Yeah. How's that? 
the bits that were too the sad. The tragic verses. He cut mm. them out. Yeah. But there's actually a pretty recent edition that's been put together from her original papers. Oh, great. Um, and so they show her poems, I think, in a much more honest light, mm. Um, mm. some of which were just fragments, but they've pieced them together. And that was published, I think, only last year. So you can... They are out there and you can read her poems, yeah. some of which, as I said, are absolutely beautiful. And even though in her own lifetime she had, you know, a little bit of success in terms of the fact that her talent and her promise was, you know, seen by the the most famous art critic of the time, mm-hmm. you know, John Ruskin um, obviously respected her and she, she did... I suppose, receive some accolades in, in regards to that. But and the first exhibitions, first solo exhibition of her work was only in the early 1990s. Whoa, wow, 1990s. So it took that long before anybody put wow. together an exhibition of her work. Just last year, there was an exhibition entitled Beyond Ophelia, and that's the, only the second solo show hmm. of her work. Wow. Um, and, yeah, so that was put together just last year. But I think the thing is as well is that ironically for me, I guess I say ironically, some of the later pre-Raphaelite paintings that are kind of associated with the pre-Raphaelites that kind of come later in the 1800s, they're still part of that school but not part of the, the, the very early movement, the first kind of iterations of that movement, are by female artists. Mm. And the reason that I find that ironic is because for years I had this diary and on the front cover was Evelyn de Morgan's Flora, which is a beautiful pre-Raphaelite painting. But I, I reckon I had that diary for about like six years before I realised that Evelyn, Evelyn de Morgan was a woman. Oh, really? I had just kept assuming that that was a man. Yeah. And it's funny how we do this. Painting it? was painted by mm. a man. And we talked about this, I think, a few episodes ago. Or perhaps it was in our... In, in it was our, in our, yeah, it was when we were talking about Artemisia Gentileschi in our live show. Which is Patreon. Yeah, you can find that on Patreon content. if you're interested in what we were talking about. Um, because I did the same thing with Judith beheading Holofrens. Yeah. When I first saw that, I just assumed it was by man. And you, and it's funny how we do that. We see mm. these pieces of art from a particular period in history and we assume, well, if it's from that period in history and it's being reproduced, it clearly must have been yeah. made by a man. But Evelyn de Morgan, some of her paintings are absolutely gorgeous and she was in the um, Edward Byrne Jones school so please check those out as well and also Lauren yes just to get you a bit excited oh the National Portrait Gallery in London yes is starting uh, in October of this year <gasps> they are opening an exhibition called the Pre-Raphaelite Sisters Ooh. which explores that so they say the significant roles they played the significant roles that the women played as artists models muses and helpmeets who supported and sustained the artistic output of the pre-raphaelite brotherhood well there you go maybe their collection will move up from one percent of female (laughs) artists represented that's right so hey that sounds exciting that does sound good i wish we were in london yeah i'm kind of thinking maybe i can just find a way to be (laughs) maybe yeah i suppose Really, when we look at Lizzie, she's remembered as this very tragic figure. Yeah. And, I mean, sure. And it's not even just that she's a tragic figure. She's a, her strongest association is with Ophelia. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. fuck. And I guess that's the thing. Like, so many of the of the figures that she modelled for 
were tragic figures mm. that in, you know, a lot of ways kind of tied back to the life that they that they did live together. Yeah. And there's a painting that Rossetti painted shortly after they were married called How They Met Themselves. And it's sort of Rossetti and Lizzie as these medieval lovers meeting their doppelgangers in, you know, over, over a, a fountain in a, in a <laughs> wood and kind of how that is a portent of, of death oh, to wow. come. Yeah. So it's kind of like so much of their tragic art, yeah. you know, is, it's, I suppose it is a portent of what, yeah. what's to come. You know, it does prophesize yeah, the way definitely. their lives played out. They did play that whole mm. tragic romance they to did. a T. They really did. They they really dove into those roles. Mm. <laughs> but the problem is, is that's predominantly how Lizzie's been remembered. Yes. And her actual right. her actual art, her actual poetry mm. and her paintings have been put to the side. And she's one of those figures that has played the sidekick to all of these male figures in this whole school of art. Mm-hmm. And I think it's only in much more recent times, like as I said, the first exib- solo exhibition of her work 90s, in the 90s, yeah. it's taken all of this amount of time before anybody's actually kind of really gone back to seriously reconsider her as her as, own artist. As her own artist mm. And as quite a talented poet. So there yeah. you have it. There people. we go. Remember, our muses are not just muses. They are people with complex inner lives mm-hmm. who are capable of the production of beautiful creative works. Cultural products, people. Yeah. It's, that's all I've got to say. <laughs> well, thank you. Sorry, I, um, gosh, she is an artist that I, I kind of, I've been very vaguely aware of in her role with the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, but I have to confess that I, I didn't know much about her art. I didn't know much about her poetry. I only knew those stories of the bathtub and the grave poems, mm. you know, and that she was this waifish, tragic muse figure. Yeah. And I think that that is how people remember her. Yeah. You know, and ha- and how people idolise her. Mm. Definitely. You know, because this is another thing. People idolise that kind of femininity still, I yeah. think. You know? Yeah. Well, there you go. So I hope everybody has a look at some of Lizzie Siddle's works. And maybe if you are looking at the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood at many of the art galleries that you can see them at in the world, maybe spare a thought and remember who their models were and, and the lives that they led. Mm. And there's an exhibition in Canberra at the moment. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Yeah, there is. I've briefly thought about going to it. I gave it some serious consideration, but then I also just bought flights to Japan. So um, <laughs> it turns out that my income cannot sustain uh, all the things I want to do. Yeah, I would like to get to that. We might have to send someone in our stead. No, oh, I don't want to do that. Either either I go or no one goes. <laughs> don't go to it. You're not allowed to go. Do you have any idea where we're going to go? Next time. Okay, so we've had a couple of episodes where we have hero-worshipped some fabulous artists. So I'm going Which to go... Which is all good. I'm going to go on a real different tangent next time. We're going to look at a woman who probably shouldn't be put on a pedestal. <laughs> That's great. Who was powerful. That's who, good. That is a good thing. That's good. Who led with conviction That's and good. courage. That's great. And maybe murdered a bunch of people. That's not so good. Yeah. 
Well, let's go that way next yes. time. <laughs> so that's where we're going next time. Terrific. Until then, that's it from us. You know where you can support us. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all of the podcasting apps. Leave us a review, subscribe. That would be amazing. And, of course, you can support us on Patreon where you can find loads of extra episodes and goodies. So you can support us there from as little as $2. Including our most recent live show on Artemisia Gentileschi. Correct. You can also buy merch from Etsy. And you can follow us online at DeviantWomen on Twitter and on the Instagrams. Yeah. Big thank you as always to India Yahui for the music and to Brendan Davies for the sound. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye.